from PRX, it's LiveWire! Recorded from our actual homes, welcome to the LiveWire house party. This week, with New Yorker cartoonist Emily Flake and poet Eileen Miles. With music from Giants in the Trees. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct, from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank. Wow. Thank you, Elena Passarello. Thank you to everybody for tuning in from uh, all over the world. This is a really different way to do the show. How's it going so far for you, Elena? <laughs> it's pretty good. I uh, yeah. uh, I did a, a trial run. I'm not very technically savvy with okay. our technical director, Molly Pettit, and she said uh-huh. that the room where I record is has a lot of echoey sound in it, so I dismantled my couch and have made this gigantic pillow fort with all the big long cushions of my sectional sofa, my leather sectional sofa, so I am cocooned into a tiny space and surrounded by pillows. I feel so safe. Now, we may be doing the show in this fashion for a long time, right? Yeah. Are, is your couch ever going to be reassembled for the next one or two months? I have to go up and down two flights of stairs to set up and dismantle the pillow fort. Um, so I don't I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's my cardio. Well, you sound great from here. So whatever you're doing, uh, it's working. Um, regular listeners to our show know that we typically do the show in front of a uh, live audience mm-hmm. at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, live audiences are now medically frowned upon. Elena, I don't know if you heard. I have. So I... the <laughs> the plan for our show for the um, uh, however long it takes, I guess, is that we're going to be doing the show from our respective homes. Uh, we're calling this a live wire house party. But I think it's exciting the idea of doing the show in this kind of new. A different way because people are going through a lot right now, yeah. and the idea that we can kind of be in that experience with them, yeah. I, I hope anyway that it, it provides some comfort for folks and something interesting to listen to. We usually have a live crowd. We don't have that this week, and we probably won't for a good while. So what we actually did was put our audience card question out on the world wide web. We asked Ooh. the <laughs> yes, we asked the live wire audience, "What is a silver lining to being stuck at home?" that you did not expect. And um, we're going to read some of those responses coming up here in a moment. I was thinking about my answer to that question this week, Elena. I would say for me, an unexpected silver lining has to do with a number of things that I've either been holding on to or maybe purchased somewhat impulsively Mm -hmm. that I never thought I was going to use. Like, (laughs) I have a stack of about 100 old New Yorkers. (gasps) I dug them all out of this drawer where I was keeping them and stacked them up, and I was like, let's dance. I am actually working through these New Yorkers, and it's like, I mean, without this current crisis that we're in, there was no way Mm -hmm. that article by Tad Friend about uh, a a sort of avant-garde pianist was getting read by me. I promise you. How about you, Elena? What is an unexpected silver lining for you of being... Uh, in your home all these hours? Oh, well, I never knew just how many different meals there could be (laughs) in the day. Uh, My lovely uh, partner, David, is an excellent cook, and he is very soothed by cooking, so I really... I really made a great choice with him. And we, uh, I think we're up to 10 meals. You got your (laughs) wake-up snack, you got your half-breakfast, you got your full breakfast... You got your pre-lunch warm-up, you got your first lunch, and then you have something that I like to call dunch, which is like brunch but with dinner, and then you have liner, and then you have your Jeopardy noshes, and then you have your midnight snack, of course, and then usually I end with a drunken refrigerator clean-out at about 1.30 in the wor- morning. Um, so those are the 10 meals. Uh, you really do have to keep yourself on a regimented schedule. Uh, what are the uh, listeners of LiveWire saying to us via the social media, Elena, about the unexpected silver linings for them of, of being stuck at home? Okay, here's one from Ellen. The silver lining of being housebound for Ellen is maybe I'll finally be able to grow out my bangs without having to live the awkward stage in public. <laughs> I had a thought related to that the other day, which was I was having a bit of an unfortunate breakout, which, you know, as a 43-year-old middle-aged dad feels unfair 
Low T and high acne. I don't know how this is happening, but same Z's. It's like the, my biggest accomplishment so far has been like four new zits, and we are in the same quartile in terms of age. What is going on with all the zits? And I'm not even touching my face anymore. It's got to be probably stress related. But what I thought the, the silver lining for me was uh, no one's going to see me for possibly months. So if this is going to happen, it's like that listener saying they're going to grow their bangs out. If, yeah. if anybody is going to be doing something where they're going to be a little embarrassed about the physicality of it, this is the prime time. That's right. You know, we're all just kind of living these very isolated lives yeah. for the moment. Uh, yeah. What's another, what's another uh, silver lining for one of our listeners? Here's one from Carla. Carla is has discovered that this is a fine time to experiment with natural deodorant. <laughs> Who's going to judge you? That's right. You know, because you don't want to you don't want to test drive that when you have a busy day with a lot of subway travel or a big presentation at the office, and you no. walk in and realize that's the moment you learn crystals aren't helping. the The listener is absolutely right. There are a lot of things right now that we can just be testing out because we're pretty much it's us and maybe our immediate family. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and we got another one. This one really hits home for me from uh, a Twitter person, a Twitter user with the handle uh-huh. a, a bear light bulb. And they uh-huh. say, now I know where my cat likes to loaf at any given hour of the day. Um, I have been stalking my cats. I don't know how it's going pet wise with you, but they have these lives. When you go away to work, you don't know anything about them. But uh, I've been following mine around. Not to generalize, but I feel like the dogs of the world are very happy about their owners <laughs> being home, and the cats of the world are less happy. That is my experience in my house. Confirmed. My cat. My cat keeps looking at me like someone who is staying at a party. A little too long. Like my cat is cleaning everything up and going, well, it was great having you here. <laughs> like, are you, aren't you leaving yet? Wait, you've been here for four solid days. This is not normal and I don't like it. All right, Elena, let's actually hear from our first guest this week. So here's what we've been doing. We've been combing through the Livewire archives, looking for interviews that feel sort of relevant to these times that we're in. And wouldn't you know it, but back in 2019, we had Emily Flake on the show. She's a cartoonist for The New Yorker, and she wrote a book about awkward hugging. Like, remember those times when the worst outcome from a hug was that it could be awkward? Yeah. That feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, that the the touching would be weird. Right, that would be... Now it seems like, oh, there are all kinds of other health implications. But this is why I think this is a good interview for us to play for the listeners. If and when... We're allowed to hug again. I feel like it is going to be a very awkward thing. Like, we're going to have to relearn how to do it, how to navigate this, because we'll all have had months off from the process. Mm-hmm. And Emily's whole book is about strategies for that. It's called That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of the Awkward Hug. So let's take a listen to this. This is Emily Flake, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. <laughs> Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello. Um, you live in New York, right? I do. So this is a, a long journey to come talk about awkward hugs. Thanks for I making do. it. <laughs> I'm just that much of an evangelist. Uh, I, I, I found the book uh, very funny, very enjoyable. Also, I saw myself in some of the chapters, which mm-hmm. I don't, you know. I've been watching you. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a particular hug that started this whole thing in your mind, that you were involved in either a great hug or a really bad hug where you thought, this should be a book? So here's the thing, there was, but it wasn't my hug. Um, There was an editor at Viking who had a book party for one of his authors, and at the end of the night, he went to like hug the author, and I didn't get details, all he would say is, it didn't go well. So he had like he wasn't ready to talk about it. No, and he looked like vaguely traumatized. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to press the issue because I'm not a monster. But you know, he had this like long, like dark night of the soul where he just like kept replaying this incident over and over. And you know, being an editor, he was like, you know, this might make a good book. Um, and apparently, when you think awkward physical interaction, you think Emily Flake. So, it, your brand is strong. It is, yeah. It it really tracks with me both, you know, as a soul and a commodity. So, <laughs> so um, you know, he brought me in and was like, I have this idea for a book. Would you like to do something with this? And I was like, uh, this is squarely in my wheelhouse. So, yes. 
and here we are. Did you guys hug after you made this agreement? Uh, we did, and it was super, like, this is something, every time I talk about this book, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like I've brought up lice way too much over the past, like, <laughs> week or so, but it's like when you start talking about lice or bugs and you can't stop scratching, mm -hmm. like, this is what I'm doing to all of you with physical interactions, like, until it wears off. You'll probably be fine by tomorrow, but pretty much every hug you have tonight is going to be awful. Does... <laughs> Does nobody want to hug you now, or does everybody want to hug you now? Oh, my God. That's such a good question. You know? Yeah. I feel both ways right now. Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> I feel like I want to hug the expert, oh, and I also feel like I don't want to be judged for my crappy hug style. No. I, see, that's the thing. I won't judge you, you know, because I both love to hug and am sometimes really bad at it. Okay. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll work this out. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was surprised by that, Emily, that you are pro-hugging because... I would assume that somebody who would write this book, it would come from a perspective of somebody who's just like, hugs are gross and why are we hugging strangers? And But you actually, you're a hugger. Yeah, um, which I think it makes it more awkward because, you know, I feel like... I like to hug, but I am afraid that people will sense the need coming out of me, like out of my pores. And that makes me very nervous that people will know that underneath I'm just like a golden retriever of a woman and I just want <laughs> like approbation and treats. But so I, I like hugging, I just don't like myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have a, uh, a, a person who's in the kind of I don't want to be too specific because they could possibly hear this on the radio, but there's a person in the periphery of my life who I like very much as a person, but when they hug me, they run their hand <gasps> up and down the small of my back, oh. and it's a long hug. Now, this person, I know their intentions are pure. Again, if I get any more specific, you're going to know it's my mom. No, <laughs> that's not true. I really now, my, my wife and I talk about it, I'm like got another one of those hugs the other day from this person. I don't really, it's, it's not mentioned in the book, um, but you do have a lot of different ways that hugs can kind of go wrong in there. Um, yeah, you just gave me a new one that I'm going to have nightmares about. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the best way to make sure that a, a, a hug is not awkward or at least minimize the chances? I don't really think that there's any way to make sure. I, I, you know, nothing is sure in this life, really. Um, I think that you know, an extra beat of just checking in, like, hey, is it cool if I hug you, is is fine, you know, because then you're not left with this, like, oh, no, this is, this isn't, this wasn't wanted or needed. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, consent, it's awesome, apparently. Yeah. Okay, we got to take a quick break. We're talking to Emily Flake. Her latest book is That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of the Awkward Hug. This is Livewire from PRI. We will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Congratulations, dear listener. You are tuned in to the mic check of something new, the Livewire house party. That's right. I'm at my house in Bellingham, Washington. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, is at her house in Corvallis. Hi, Elena. Hello, hello. Uh, let's get back to this conversation we recorded in 2019 with the New Yorker cartoonist Emily Flake. She wrote a book about awkward hugs, which feels, feels very much for this moment. Take a listen. Uh, I'm curious... 
when did you first start getting into using cartoons as a way to tell jokes and tell stories? Were, were you always into drawing or were you a storyteller and you figured this is something I can do in an efficient way to tell a joke or a story? It kind of grew together. Um, I, I loved National Lampoon when I was five. That's not a great <laughs> thing to say. Um, and you grew up to be an awkward hugger. I know, weird, right? Um, but I recently was helping my parents clean out their uh, garage and I found this like personal essay I'd written when I was nine where I said I wanted to be a comedian and then in parentheses, that's feminine for comedian. <laughs> and then I said, and I might write some books someday. Um, and no mention of, of drawing, but I always, you know, I always drew. Um, but then I ended up going to art school. And as a result, I now have like a lot more baggage about how I draw than I do about how I write. I did a TV story about Charles Schultz recently, mm -hmm. the, you know, the guy behind Peanuts. And he would do something he called cartooning his cartoon. Mm -hmm. He would just start sort of doodling around and drawing, you know, Woodstock or whatever, before he even knew what the joke was. Mm -hmm. Do you ever do that? Like, what's, what comes first, the idea or the drawing? No, I 100% always write first. And then the drawing is just this sort of millstone. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, and I hesitate before I say that because, like, that is not cool to people who have, like, real millstones or right. have to work in a wheat factory. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I prefer the writing process. <laughs> Do you have, like... Sorry. We just lost most of our listeners in Iowa. <laughs> Thanks, Emily Flake. There's no such thing as a <laughs> I have to go now. Yeah. I wish I could say Emily was the first guest this week to cry on Livewire. Um, I want to run through some of the hugs that are that are listed in the book, okay? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can give me a, a description of them. Uh, this is a this just sends a chill down my spine because I've definitely done this before. The I didn't recognize you at first hug. Yeah, um, so I feel like, especially when it's somebody that you haven't seen in a while um, and time has had its way with you, uh, <laughs> you know, there's that moment where like, you know, somebody's locking eyes with you and you don't know exactly why and you're like, maybe this is murdery. <laughs> um, but then you realize that they know you and then you know that there's no way to keep that look on your face of when you do recognize them, that slight like, oh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, and it does make for a very awkward situation. Um, I mean, and does it, does, it, does it sort of seep into the hug itself? The physical act of the hugging? Yeah, because I think the hug then becomes an apology for what you just did with your face. <laughs> uh, what about the flirty friend hug? Oh, so um, this is like basically drawn right from my husband's business partner, who is like, I probably shouldn't say that in yeah. public. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, Jerry. Nobody tell him. Everybody be cool. Um, <laughs> But he's just one of those people who, like, you know, and he's happily married. There's no, there's not a hint of sketchiness about him, but he has a way of really, like, focusing on you when you talk and smiling just a little bit like you you have, are sharing, like, a delicious joke. And in your head, and when I say your, I mean my head, I, you know, you know that you know, this isn't flirting, but it registers, like, on a cellular level as flirting. So the hug kind of is charged a little bit, um, and sometimes, sometimes you make mistakes. <laughs> I, I started this worried about what your husband's coworker was going to hear. Now I'm worried about what your husband is going to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is, this is all going very badly. <laughs> How about the hippie uncle hug? Ugh. I feel like we're in a real hot zip for that here in Portland. Uh, yeah, the, the hippie uncle, the, the, old, the, the old guy in the tie-dyed shirt who lies about what he did in the 60s. Um, <laughs> Wow, you've really written a backstory for this guy. <laughs> like he wasn't really at Woodstock. No, no. And his kindness is performative. Um, 
and he is at heart a cruel and selfish person. What does that hug look slash feel like? Slash smell like. Uh, <laughs> Word. It feels brittle and it smells like old patchouli, I guess. Mm. It's, yeah. Because it's not genuine. It's not genuine. It's performative. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you feel like sometimes people who are trying to project the most kind of namaste are the least? Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I have a friend who used to say that, like, you know, punks are nice people pretending to be mean and hippies are mean people pretending to be nice. Wow. You just blew my mind. Like, I want to hug you (laughs) from now knowing that. Uh, Is this where it turns into, like, a radio brawl? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but I I feel like that's, that's fairly accurate. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, is there a legitimate defense of hugging between two relative strangers? And, and I, I say that because, like, we live in a time where, thankfully, there is at least some shred of accountability now around how we make physical contact with mm. each other. It's just the hug has been a portal for so much <laughs> creepiness to sort of move through over the right. years. I mean, I just, I don't feel like we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater on that, you know? I mean, it's still a legitimate, like expression of affection. Um, and you know, if you happen to be a huggy person and you meet somebody for the first time and you hug, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great, but yeah, I think just that extra beat of like seeing if it's okay. Um, I guess that can be a thing. Yeah. Hopefully it will continue to be even more of a thing going forward. The book is that was awkward. The art and etiquette of the awkward hug. Emily Flake. Thanks for coming on Livewire. This is Livewire from PRX. We are mic checking something new, the Livewire house party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here at my actual house. Elena Passarello, our announcer, is in Corvallis, Oregon. All of you are out there listening wherever you might be. And, um, of course, normally on the show we have a live studio audience and we ask them a question every week and they pass forward their answers. We had to do that virtually this week. Um, And uh, we asked the question online, what's a silver lining to being stuck at home that maybe you weren't expecting? And a lot of people, turns out, Elena, have a lot of time on their hands. Oh, yeah. They were able to give us a response. And you have those collected up. What are people saying? Uh, Here's one from Susan. Uh, Susan says, I'm having phone conversations with friends like a 15-year-old girl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you did you have this experience? I know you've never been a 15-year-old girl, Luke, but when you were a teenager where you would just talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours? Was that I your... had a I had a quote-unquote girlfriend in 8th grade <laughs> who I never had the nerve to talk to at school. Aww. But we would talk on the phone every day. The thing was, we had nothing to talk about. So I would call her, she would answer the phone and Then we would just sit there awkwardly (laughs) for 45 minutes because we had no shared experience, and then we would hang up. Um, But I looked so forward to those calls, and I am also back to calling people. I'm considering using teleconference, like video teleconference, to video conference with my family. I have this huge family. There's seven of us kids and our parents, and like... I actually am finding that a a lot of enforced downtime is making me more communicative and more... Uh, wanting to connect with my friends and family. And it's really fun. I sit on my porch, call people, talk to them for long periods of time. I mean, that's been a huge silver lining for me as well. Yeah, I think so too. I think I, I before this, I sort of have relegated the phone to like the thing that I do every Sunday. I call my mom and let her know I'm still alive or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but now, like even in the conversations that we've had putting this show together, I, I feel that giddiness of connection that I used to feel when you would be at home as a teenager and the phone would ring and it would be one of your people. Like it, 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 it lights me up in a different way. Uh, what else are the Livewire listeners saying they're finding to be surprisingly, mm, I don't know, positive about this whole thing? Here's a good one from Abby. Abby says, I'm a teacher and I feel like parents are finally going to give us the respect we deserve. One hundred percent. This whole event and the the isolating that we've most of us have had to do has really, I think, highlighted who the important people in our society are. And oh, they yeah. are, in no particular order, 
teachers, medical professionals, people that stock grocery stores. Hell yeah. Postal workers, people who do home delivery of any kind. Mm -hmm. You know who's not on that list? Any Fortune 500 CEOs, no. any movie stars, like the whole order of who we should be sort of valuing yeah. and, and, and appreciative of, I feel like has now been uh, flipped on its head and it's long overdue. Uh, what, else, uh, what else are the listeners telling you? Here's a good one from Dan. I won't need to attend any of my friends' improv shows for the foreseeable <laughs> future. <laughs> That's really a blessing for all of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, let's be totally honest. There was a certain amount of this social distancing that got all of us out of a couple of jams yeah. <laughs> involve, involving some kind of thing that we didn't want to go to, you know? Yeah. Like, this is a really, really good cover for not attending that yeah. piano recital or whatever it might oh, have yeah. been. Uh, there, and then on the other hand, some of the greatest cultural institutions on the planet are making their content accessible. The, yeah. Par- the Paris Opera is live streaming its operas every day. You can just tune in and, and, and see from that beautiful building, you know, La Boheme or whatever. What a treat. And then the other day on Twitter, Yo-Yo Ma was like, I know times are hard. And so he just videotaped himself playing um, the ballad from Dvorak's New World Symphony on the cello just as like a little, hey, everybody. This is Livewire from PRX. We are Mike checking something new, the Livewire house party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here at my actual house. Right over there in Corvallis, Oregon, is Elena Passarello uh, in a uh, soundproof fort made out of couch cushions. This is a very strange time to be living in the United States, uh, certainly for most of us. Um, But something that kind of soothes me when things feel a little chaotic and out of control is actually poetry mm-hmm. or even jokes about poetry, Elena. I saw on Twitter this week, somebody <laughs> wrote that they were very glad that they didn't have to worry about hoarding food because they had been saving some plums in the ice box and they were going to have them <laughs> the next morning. I do really find poetry to be something that's sort of calming for me. And I thought maybe we could talk poetry on the show here for a little bit, or maybe even better, play this interview from 2018 when we interviewed the poet Eileen Miles. Uh, who is an incredible writer, the recipient of many literary awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, Eileen's most recent book of poems is titled Evolution. So let's take a listen to this conversation recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater with the poet Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles, welcome to Livewire. Um, Thank you. Uh, This uh, book, Evolution, is amazing. I told you before the show, I I tore through it and I was bummed out when it was done. I just, I was like, can I just start texting you or something? Can we keep this conversation (laughs) going? It's like the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Yeah. 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 Just start reading it again. I'm I'm very... backwards. Yeah. It has all satanic messages. (laughs) Really? The other way. I went to a Christian school uh, as a kid and we were told often that there was backmasking satanic messages in the music of ACDC and Kiss and these bands. Uh-huh. And then the, uh, the, the teacher, the Bible teacher, would play the songs backwards, and the messages were so boring. One was wine and women. <laughs> if you played a certain song backwards, it would go, wine and women. Uh-huh. Like, this is a very classy demon. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, a bad poet, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. You would know. Uh-huh. Like, um, in, reading, in reading this book, I, I felt like you were very present. In the moment of writing these poems, there was a line that just stuck out to me for some reason. I loved it. You wrote in one of them, my arm rests on a pillow, and that feels pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you, when you're writing that, are you, is your arm resting on a pillow, and it feels pretty good, and you observe it? Uh, totally. Yeah. I don't have any other material. Don't <laughs> what. <laughs> I don't have, a, I have no imagination. Uh, yeah. Just limbs. Yeah. When this book is at its best, I think it does feel like we're just hanging out with you. Um, how do you know when it, you're doing something that is worth telling us about and when you're not doing something that's worth telling us about? I mean, I, 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 there's no way of knowing if it truly is worth telling us about. But, but I feel like there's a kind of altered state. For some reason or other, I feel different now than I did before. And so now seems like the right time to write, you know? 
Um, That's are a bad you, explanation. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, but you know, you know, you get depressed, and suddenly you're like, you know, your energy flips, and you're high for some reason. Like walking my dog, there are just some mornings I'm walking her, and the city is crazy and beautiful, and I don't why, why today? You know, so that's kind of a ecstatic poetry state. You know? And what do you do when you are realize you're in that moment? Do you make a beeline to go home and start writing? Do you sit down where you are? Do you like talk into your cell phone? Like how do you how do you harness that? I carry little notebooks. I generally do that. And there's, there's always some place to sit, you know, and the dog is happy to wait and just <laughs> get to it. Because she's often the star. How often does a dog get to be a star of poems? Yeah. Um, uh, we're talking to Eileen Miles. Their new book is Evolution. Um, you are going to read uh, from this. I am. Yes. At what point now? Yeah, could yeah. you? <laughs> um, so I'm just going to read the best poem I ever wrote. Uh, get okay. it over with quick, right? Wow. Um, what's, what's the name of this piece? It's called The Baby. Okay. This is Eileen Miles on Livewire. The baby says to the old man, let's have a cup of coffee. The old man says, now you're talking. Eileen Miles, everybody. <laughs> Guggenheim Fellow. Yeah. Eileen Miles, everyone. Incroyable. Yes. Um, that was short and sweet. Yeah, I did it. Okay. Do you think that's the best that's poem you've ever written? Kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Because it ends and then you're like, what? Oh. It's just like it kind of crawls up on you. Yes. You know? A slow yeah. soaker. Yeah. <laughs> Would you read us the second best poem you've written? <laughs> that is a little bit longer. Could you read Our Happiness? Absolutely, yeah. And actually, this poem sounds like it's about being young and poor, but it's actually about Sandy, and the whole city had no electricity. So. Her uh, Superstorm Sandy. Super, when, when this... Superstorm Sandy, yes, yeah. Um, our happiness. It was when the lights were out, the whole city in darkness, and we drove north to our friend's yellow apartment where she had power and we could work. Later, we stayed in the darkened apartment, you sick in bed and me writing ambitiously by candlelight and thin blue books. Your neighbor had a generator, and after a while, we had a little bit of light. I walked the dog, and you were still a little bit sick. We sat on a stoop one day in the late afternoon. We had very little money, enough for a strong cappuccino, which we shared sitting there, and suddenly the city was lit. Eileen Miles. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, I think this might be a good chance to kind of educate some folks out there that aren't as familiar with the way that we're using pronouns these days. You, uh, your pronoun is they, them. Yeah. And um, can you explain kind of how you arrived at deciding that, that that's what felt more right to you? I mean, it sounded so wrong when other people were doing it a few years ago. I was like, oh, that's not like intuitive. I said what everybody said. And then at a certain point, I started to think, well, sometimes I feel female and sometimes I feel male. And then it just seemed like it was kind of baggy in this great way that you could be over here and that you could be over there and that they just kind of held all that, you know? And it was just, um, it just seemed sort of bountiful and full of choices. And so, and also it's like the devil, you know, like, like, and, um, I didn't see that part coming. Okay. <laughs> Everything basically is like the devil, <laughs> yeah. But um, I think when um, I went to Catholic school, so I know all about the New Testament. So um, Jesus had was was given somebody to cure. The person had devils in them, and they, you know, so they were like exorcised. And so Jesus did what exorcists do, which is like, tell me your name. And the, Satan said, my name is Legion, you know. And I, that, that's it. It's sort of like the devil is many. The devil is a lot of people. The, day, the devil is they, them, the whole bunch of them, you know? Wait, the devil is using they, them now? I think that's the implication. It's like, if, if my name is Legion, then what do you call it? Like, it's right. they, right? right? It's not he, Legion. It's they, Legion. Right. Yeah. And I thought, I like that. <laughs> to be a gang of devils. Right. But I'm trying, to, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to merge it with the old thing, because there is this thing where it's sort of like this, a bit of a thing of like trans versus lesbian, which is a false thing, but it's kind of there. So I kind of like to refer to myself as like a they lesbian. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of... Is that catching on, do you think? I know. It's a complete failure. <laughs> I, have, I have no community now. <laughs> well, it's it like, sounds like the devil is your community now. So. Exactly. Yeah, have Being, a great time. Yeah. <laughs> 
you ran for president in the early 90s, right? Are you that, still running? Like, is this a, just a once, state of being? Yeah. Once you're, once you're a presidential candidate, you're sort of always alluded to that way. You're permanently running in a way. You can't stop it. So you've been running for president for the last 20 or so years, give exactly, or take? Exactly. And you yeah. wrote in this book, Evolution, you wrote an acceptance speech for becoming yeah. president. And yeah. I, I swear to God, whoever wins the next time around, when they give their speech, I'm muting the TV and I'm going to play the audio book of you right. reading this. Thank you. Yeah. So I was wondering if you would mind reading that. It's lengthy. Do you guys, do you guys down for that? So here we go. This is uh, Eileen Miles on Livewire. So first, I just want to say this feels incredible. To be female, to run and run and run and not see any end in sight, but maybe have a feeling that there's really no outside to this endeavor, this beautiful thing. You know, we don't have a single female on any of our bills. And what about two women, two women loving, or even more? A lot of women, a lot of money. Is there a message I failed to receive that the face of woman cannot be on our money? What about the house I just won, that white one? When I sit there, and if I sit there, and I gotta tell you, I'm not sure I wanna sit there. Some of you might remember my first campaign. Yes, that was back in 1992. Few men have run for 24 years. 25 by the time I stand and take the oath in January to serve my country. I did not quit. I stand here with you on this beautiful, rapturous day, sunny day in New York, to turn around, to look back, and look at all that we've won. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to that house, that white house. We often hear these words even as an explanation of what metonym means. Are you familiar with this term? Yes, I promise you a poetic presidency. <laughs> the White House speaks as a metonym. Certainly that White House we speak of is not the whole government. Like Fred Moten says, it is incomplete, but it has come to be a symbol of it. And I think two things. I think whiteness, I think of the whiteness of the house, and I think of houseness. It houses the government. Now that I have won, it offers to house me now. I now officially make that White House a homeless shelter. It is a complete disgrace that we have people without homes living on the streets of America. I have lived with them, not for long periods of time, but in the same way that I am the first president who knows what women feel because I am a woman, I am one. I have also eaten chicken with a homeless. I ate at the Bowery Mission, very rubbery, very chewy chicken. Those chicken were not happy when they lived, and they are no happier being chewed on dead at the Bowery Mission. And the chewers are not happy either, no. Here's the future. Good food at the White House for all the homeless in America. You know who the homeless are? They are military men and women who fought our pointless wars, who came home after each stupid, greedy war we have waged, and they got less. Is there a GI Bill for veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. Can they buy a house? Who can buy a house? Under miles, they have bought the White House. That is my gift. The White House will house the mentally ill, outpatiented during the great President Reagan, meaning he threw them out of the house, the mentally ill thrown out of the American house, and the alcoholics who do not have free and abundant and available treatment, because this country breaks our hearts. We will habit them too. We will occupy all government buildings and memorials, housing and holding and loving the homeless and the sick and the starving. We'll do what the statue says, you know, liberty. We will take buildings, we will build buildings in our culture, our new America will begin to live. Our government needs to be in the business of living, not dying. What else is a government for? The government will become more departmental and take you in, you and your wonderful needs. We'll start with the Department of Women. Obviously, to say women matter and do matter so much and a lot, we need a distinct place in the government to specifically focus on female concerns, which is parity mainly, reforming Congress so that if America is increasingly diverse in a number of ways, our Congress must represent those groups percentage-wise. That's smart, don't you think? So if most of the people in America are female, so should be our government, right? This is Livewire. You're listening to poet Eileen Miles reading from their poem, Acceptance Speech. America is not a department store. We want to do more in our country than shop online and at the mall. Let's face it, everyone is home shopping and yelling at each other on their computers. The malls are falling apart. The malls are pretty much gone. Let them go. We want to make real departments for who we really are, not shopping. We will be strong. Let's go. Let's go out. We are out there now. We are on the high line, yes. That's the way it works under miles. Early on, I described a department of culture. We will have that. We will have art in America, not just the magazine. Just for starters, we will multiply the budget of the NEA by tenfold. We will bring you back CEDA. That was like an art workers program we had in the 80s, but we will call it CEDA. CEDA. 
I don't know what. See what? I don't know. I just, I just get elected. I haven't worked everything out, but just think of the possibilities. See the sky. See the river. See the Whitney. A lot of people we walk around appreciating, we will pay them. There'll also be a hear the program, the smell the program. That's probably what you're going to do early on with all those, you know, recovering veterans who don't have to live on the streets. Get them in on the see the, smell the, hear the programs. We're going to massively fund libraries, open 24 hours. They will not be filled with homeless people because they will have homes. So the libraries will be filled with people reading and watching movies and going into the conversation rooms and having conversations and so on. All education will be free. Trains will be free. Cars eventually will be banned. Cars are stupid. <laughs> no more pumping oil. No more fracking. Everything will be driven by the sun or else will be plugged in electrically. Electric something. There'll be a lot of free food, a lot of art. <laughs> Everyone will be a really good shot. We'll get good at aiming, intentions, not killing. Oh, yeah, and we'll send a lot of masseuses to Israel and Palestine. No more pesticides. Here, anywhere, lots of small farmers, amazing number of stand-up comedians, lots of rehearsal spaces, and available musical instruments and learning centers for people like myself who would like to play something, perhaps a guitar. Nobody would be unemployed. Everyone would be learning Spanish or going out into the yard and helping the farmers improve the crops, just gardening, helping the flowers, distributing the flowers, see the flowers. When in doubt, always just being a Sida person for a while. There'll be a lot of people encouraging people to Sida. We want the Sida to come back. There'll be an increase in public computers like water, like air. Have we stopped the oil and fracking early enough to protect the water and air? We hope so. But there will be a decrease in private computers with an enhanced desire to be here exactly where we are, which some people would argue is there on the computer, which of course would be allowed, but being here would be cool. Some people <laughs> meditating, other people just walking around smiling, feeling good about themselves, living shamelessly and glad. Guns would be buried, guns would be in museums, and people would increasingly not want to go there. Oh. Gun museums would die. What was that all about? Money would become rare. I would have a radio show as your president. Also, I might be on television. Also, I might want to talk to you. In the tradition of American presidents like Fiorello LaGuardia, the little flower, I would be President Edward Miles, the woman changing my name very often. Will probably be good. I would like that. And I would write a new poem for you each week. I might just walk around saying it. Eventually, you would forget I was the president. I'd go to the gym. There are people who like to manage things, just like there are people who like to play cards, and the managers would change often enough, and they would keep the parks clean. America increasingly turning into one big park, one big festival of existence with unmarked toilets and nightly, daily events and free surfing lessons and free boards. Just put it back when you're done. And a good bed for everyone. I just slept in the best bed last night. I slept on the plane. Sleep is great. Nobody will be sure to sleep. Everyone will be well-slept, chaotic and loving-hearted, and have all the time in the world to not kill to love and be president. Everybody take your turn and dance. Dance now. I love my fellow citizens. It's good to win. Thank you. I feel like I had a bad dream last night that like the head of the FBI decided to steal the election by making up about me because I am female, but that wasn't true. And we are really here, undiluted, unmucked up, wide awake in America for once. See the, see the, see all of you and your fabulous beauty and your power and your hope. Thank you for your vote and I love you. Thank you so much. That was Eileen Miles here on Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. I'm doing the show from a uh, small room in my house just off my kitchen. Elena Passarello, our announcer, is at her house. Uh, we got to take a quick break, though. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. This is Livewire. Hey, special thanks this episode to Ed and Ann Galen of Portland, Oregon. Ed and Ann are members of the Livewire community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support, because without it, and without support from people like Ed and Ann, we would not be able to do this show. So a big, big thanks to Ed and Ann for helping make the show possible this week. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank, broadcasting this week and for, well, probably a while, <laughs> from my actual house 
Um, before we wrap things up on the show this week, we got a little music for you because uh, just because we're all sheltering in place doesn't mean we can't have an impromptu dance party featuring music from Giants in the Trees. Remember when we had these folks on Livewire back in 2019, Elena? Oh, absolutely. I got a, a hug from Chris Novoselic. Yeah, who uh, was once a member of Nirvana. This is definitely Giants in the Trees, the first band that we've had on that features one of the founding members of Nirvana. I'm confident in saying that. So it was like a big deal for us to get them on. Um, The other folks in the band, by the way, are Jillian Ray on vocals, Eric Friend on percussion, Ray Prestigard on guitars, and, as mentioned, Chris Novoselic. Let's take a listen to this. Giants in the Trees, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hello, Portland. <laughs> um, Chris, I need to ask you a question that I already can feel like it's not going to end well, but this has been something I've been carrying around for like, mm, it's a story I've been telling folks for 20 plus years of my life. I grew up in Seattle. I grew up on 77th Avenue, right by Aurora, where the Chubby and Tubby was. And I think your Nirvana's guitar tech lived on my street. Ernie Bailey. Yes. And you used to drive down my street in a V-dub van, and I had a scooter, and I would race your van. And you would my... win. Yes, I, I would. I remember you, yeah. Because, yeah. That is so validating. It was a slow van. Yeah, no, it was a very slow van, honestly. That, I, I'm just like, I was like, we're going to get this guy on the show. I'm going to remember the story. He's going to be like, that's not where that guy lived, and you were racing the wrong person. <laughs> but you're saying, for the record, I did not hallucinate that. You, you would drive your van down my street sometimes, and I would sometimes race you. Wow. That's amazing. Well, uh, we're so excited to have you here. What song are we going to hear? It's our new single. It's called It Goes. All right. This is Giants in the Trees on Livewire.
was so good. Their album, Volume 2, is available now. That was Giants in the Trees, recorded back in 2019 at the Alberta Rose Theater. Boy, that feels like a lifetime ago. By contrast, this week's show was recorded in a small room here at my house, because this is the mic check edition of our new series, The Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're going to be back here next week with another house party. For now, though, that's going to do it for the program. A huge thanks to our guests, Emily Flake, Eileen Miles, and Giants in the Trees. Livewire is brought to you in part by Foley, Alaska Airlines, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Springs, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. And a very special thanks this episode to the Portland Book Festival. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Chris Becker of Port Townsend, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or our newsletter, please head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week.